0: You're listening to IoT Leaders, a podcast from SI that shares real IoT stories from the field about digital transformation swings and misses, lessons learned, and innovation strategies that work. In each episode, you'll hear our conversations with top digitization leaders on how IoT is changing the world for the better. Let IoT Leaders be your guide to IoT, digital transformation, and innovation. Let's get into the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to the IoT Leaders Podcast with me, your host, Nicole, CEO of SI. This one, I actually think is my favorite one. Of all the ones that we've done, I think this is my favorite. And the reason is, it is such, well, it's a great story, but this is a company, Bioformis, as you'll hear, that is tackling an enormous problem, which essentially can be summarized as reinventing healthcare. And although that sounds hugely ambitious and you think, oh, you know, surely no one can take that on. Uh, they've been funded almost half a billion dollars by some of the top VCs in the world who believe in what they're doing. They're already active in the market and they are essentially identifying disease using machine learning and AI algorithms to identify disease before the patient sees it and therefore get early intervention. And you'll hear a great story about their journey from Shah, the CTO, and where they're up to and what else it could be used for going forward. So this is a, a real Silicon Valley type play. They're based in Boston, Massachusetts, although they started in Singapore. And so it's all here in the uh, podcast. I think you're really gonna enjoy it. And so with that, I will then hand over to my discussion with Milan Shah, the CTO of Bioformis. Here we go. So Milan, welcome to the IoT Leaders podcast. Great to have you. Thank you for having me, Nick. Well, really looking forward to this one. We've been working together for a few years. And I like to say that BioFormus is not a company that's trying to solve a small problem. I mean, you are massively ambitious as a company and quite a bit down the line. You're the CTO of Bioformis perhaps we can start maybe just a little bit about yourself milan i always like to start off the podcast with just let people understand who my guest is so maybe just a brief potted history of of yourself and how you
2: became cto of bioformis uh sure thank you again for uh giving me the opportunity to be here it's uh, been a pretty amazing uh, very very uh, i consider myself very blessed to be able to do what i'm doing so i'll start with uh my graduate work, uh, which I did at MIT, this was about 27 years ago. And uh, at the time uh, I worked in the CSAIL, the computer science and and AI laboratory, and AI and machine learning were, you know, in a somewhat rudimentary stage. There were Cray computers, massively parallel computers being built to do AI ML. And, you know, really uh, the big thing that everybody was trying to figure out is what would we use AI ML for, right? Uh, What could be the applications of this kind of, technology. Uh, So that was 27 years uh, ago. And uh, since that time, my entire career has been really focused on both those elements, large-scale computing and and AI ML. Now, my earlier part was more about large-scale computing. Distributed computing was sort of the implementation, not necessarily the the supercomputers part, right? But uh, the idea of distributed computing Really was starting to take off, and then sort of the internet happened, and and now we have cloud computing. So uh, distributed, massive scale computing is is something that's here now, very easily available. My journey started, career journey started at Microsoft, where I worked on the initial versions of Microsoft Windows NT. Again, on the distributed file system, I ended up building Exchange, which is their email product, still very much in use today. And then I moved on to a lot of cybersecurity type of applications, uh, a single sign-on, and so on. The recurring theme over there was an uh, underlying theme in all of these uh, cases was, how can we also use some amount of machine learning to, to manage the scale, to if you will, right? Uh, certainly, the last thing I was doing in cybersecurity was essentially monitoring, collecting metrics from computing. So you are, let's say a large infrastructure company like a PayPal or an eBay and people like that, right? You're running hundreds of thousands or Facebook, you're running hundreds of thousands of computers, and you're trying to figure out which of them might be under attack, which ones of them might already be hacked and so on. So the general idea was if we collect enough metrics from all of them and we understand what their baseline behavior is, maybe we can use AI and ML to identify which ones of them are skewing off the baseline and potentially are have been hacked and so on, Right. It's a tough business, uh, tough uh, technical problem, mostly because computers don't really have a a consistent baseline, right? And while I was working on this kind of a field, I managed to run into Kuldeep uh, Rajput. Uh, He's the CEO and founder of uh, Bioformis. And uh, he had recently decided to move uh, his headquarters to Bioformis. This was on the heels of the Series A uh, or Series B, I should say, from Sequoia, the 45 million so he was ready to, you know, really expand the technical team and then take the company on its onto its uh, full uh, potential. He was moving his headquarters to Boston, and that's how I got introduced to him. And when I learned about what he's trying to do, essentially collecting metrics from human beings and trying to figure out when somebody deviates off of a baseline and therefore is likely deteriorating from a physiological perspective, if we could detect that and give clinicians an earlier warning than has ever been possible. Then they could intervene earlier, produce better outcomes. The patient benefits from a significantly better quality of life. Overall cost to the systems go down. And we fundamentally can change the trajectory of human health. uh, uh, You can actually anticipate a day uh, when when given systems like ours and automatic infusion systems, you could actually have self-medicating human beings, right? Where for many, many cases, you could detect the onset of some illness and automatically administer medicine keeping the human uh, being uh, essentially disease-free for to a lot of what is common diseases today. Yeah. So once I understood what he's trying to do, the fact that humans' physiology does actually, as opposed to computers, do actually have a very consistent baseline in, in many levels, I sort of understood the power of being able to apply AI-ML techniques to the problem of early detection of disease. And, um, you know, one thing led to another and I decided to join Bioformis, and here we are.
1: Here we are. Well, there's a lot there and it gives the listeners a good idea of why so many people think that this is a, such huge potential. You know, and to unpack that, I guess when I first heard of Bioformis or I've talked to other people about Bioformis, they say, oh yeah, medical company, but you don't describe yourself as a, a medical company. In fact, you've talked about AI and ML and and when we spoke previously, you, you say, no, 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 we think of ourselves as data sciences and you talk about biomarkers. Um, maybe you could just go a little bit more into that because it helps people differentiate between, you know, is this just a sort of a big version? Are you competing with the Apple Watch or is this just a, a big version of remote patient monitoring? And it's not, but to understand why it's not, you kind of have to go down the AI ML biomarker route,
2: don't you? Absolutely, absolutely. So we certainly consider ourselves a data sciences company, and what has really unleashed the full potential here, not only at Bioformis, but I'm beginning to see it across the industry. Right? Is uh, one way to really think about it is if you look at clinical practice, medical practice, starting from 2,400 years ago when Hippocrates basically realized that you know illness and human maladies are uh, probably not caused by some you know superpowers and the gods and, and so on and so forth, but rather they are caused by something else where it is possible to observe, draw conclusions and come up with treatment plans, right? Just the very idea that, that you know, human malaise was not being caused by the gods, but by caused by something else that could actually be treatable. That is what set off the, the entire era of modern medicine 2,400 years ago, right? But therein lies the catch. The way it is, is you first observe, then you draw conclusions and then you come up with a treatment plan, right? So translated, what happens is all clinical practice effectively starts when the patient visits the doctor and then, you know, the doctor does their measurements and uh, and draws inferences and then comes up with a treatment plan and off we go, right? What technology today has really enabled is something which flips the whole model on its head. Now, because of the the proliferation of very inexpensive and very high-grade sensors, everything from optical sensors to ECG sensors to even fancier things like uh, uh, galvanic skin response sensors, cameras, what have you, right? All of these sensors have suddenly become, A, very inexpensive, and B, extremely high quality. It is now possible to measure human physiology in a continuous manner. And what has happened here at Bioformis is that as we look at all these uh, common physiological phenomena, your pulse rate, your ECG waveform, on a continuous way, you can start doing math on these continuous waveforms. You can take the first derivative, you can take the second derivative, you can do correlations with each other and so on and so forth, right? And as you start doing that, you come up with what we call biomarkers. So these are essentially mathematical constructs that seem to be correlated, mathematically correlated with certain disease conditions, certain disease progressions, and so on. In many cases, they don't even have a name for obvious reasons. It has not been possible to to do this kind of measurement and to do this kind of uh, calculation before. But now it is. it's it's, uh, you know, from a math perspective, it's relatively straightforward stuff, right? As an example, if you took a pulse wave, a waveform, and you took the first derivative, well that's just measuring the acceleration of the pulse wave. In some ways, it's a proxy for how the heart is beating, right? How much pressure it's generating. So even though the first derivative of pulse wave is not a mathemat- it's a clinically understood quantity, you can see that intuition would lead you to believe that the first derivative of a continuous pulse waveform, is probably correlated to blood pressure, which is correlated to lots of disease conditions, right? So you can take these kinds of biomarkers and go off with that, right? Or alternatively, you can think about, let's say, voice. We all understand that when you start falling sick, oftentimes your voice changes. So once again, you can take voice samples of people, of patients, and do signal processing on them and understand the deviations of their signal processed voice from a baseline when they were healthier to uh, now when they may not be. And you can again correlate that to disease progression. So the act of sensing and the act of this massive computing power available has allowed us to define a whole bunch of uh, biomarkers which seem to be correlated with uh, disease progressions and disease conditions, which can then be used to provide a signal for earlier intervention and so on and so forth. So it's been a it's a fascinating, fascinating new world out there,
1: It totally is. and we've had a few uh, podcast guests in the classical healthcare field who are also s i customers, and we will we'll get on to that. But there is a common theme in the a lot of people are saying is the old model that you described it, the serial supply chain, you know, something takes hold after two or three days, I realize I'm sick after another two or three days, maybe I'll ask for a doctor's appointment after another. I don't know what it's like in Massachusetts, but in the London area, after another five days, maybe I'll get an appointment. I mean, by the time I get there, I'm pretty sick. And then, and it's a reactive model, but what you're describing is a proactive model, but with the potential to be a preemptive um, model. There's something going on. You don't know it yet, Correct. but but the AI thinks there's 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 an X percent correlation between six factors. Therefore, intervention, behavior change, Yes. did and I guess it—you it, could almost—it's massively long tail personalization as well because maybe the biomarkers for one person mean something different to the biomarkers for another person, and there's just no way you can do that with a linear supply chain, reactive, reactive system. It has to be personalized. It has to be a massive compute and AI ML, and it becomes proactive and preemptive. And it's the holy grail, if you like, of, of healthcare.
2: Absolutely. I think uh, you nailed a lot of important topics, but I'll uh, tease out a couple. One is the whole idea of personalization. So you're absolutely right. right? So now once people have realized the power of AIML and how it can be applied to healthcare predictions and so on, the next hurdle that people have run into, so to speak, is the idea of, well, AIML, how does it traditionally work? Right? You collect a whole bunch of sample data from essentially a cohort group, you train some kind of a model and then you supply it with data from a new person that it has never seen before and then it'll uh, have predictive powers based on that initial training right data unfortunately as you correctly identified every human being is effectively different from every other one you have your own medical history you're slated for a knee replacement surgery 3 months from now and you just got covid while you were a heart failure patient et etc cetera, etc cetera, et cetera, right it's very difficult to try and find a suitable cohort group that we could train a model on, which would work for you, right? So bioformis has taken a very different approach. We don't train our models on cohort group data. We train models based on your own data. So by now, understanding human physiology as well as this basic change in strategy, we can take we baseline our algorithms in usually in three to six hours we automatically, what we use do use the cohort group data for is to project. If your initial six hour data looks like this, then what will be the effect of nocturnal cycles? What will be the effect of a circadian rhythm, et cetera? We can project without actually having to measure. And so we can start doing predictive analysis between three and six hours from when you onboard onto our system. And after that, it's completely personalized for you. And the predictions are very, very accurate from that perspective. Incidentally, a lot of this is FDA cleared so it's uh, I love that about the space we are in, right? You can there's a a framework in which to measure these claims, right? So some of our algorithms are cleared by the FDA, which means that the exact how do you interpret this data and what kind of clinical action you can take based on this data is documented in a very public form and validated by a obviously a extremely accomplished body like the FDA.
1: Yes, yeah, which is hugely important because of the implications of the initial interpretation that you're making of the data before it goes to the clinician. Yeah. We get back to approvals in the market in a little bit later on, but I was reading some of the press releases when you did these big funding rounds. Well, actually what journalists wrote. And one of the phrases that jumped out at me is is this fact that you once you've created this knowledge uh, through the AIML layer, there's actually two very different audiences for it. I mean, there's It talked about the sort of healthcare providers and the clinicians who obviously want to get this data because of the proactive preemptive bit. And then I'd also talked about pharmaceutical companies, which, and the the sort of drug approval process, which I'd never thought of. Maybe we can deal with each of those in a uh, one after the other, because the, the second one takes it to a whole new layer level to do with how drugs are introduced in the future which is really interesting. But let's deal with the first one. So let's just say I'm a clinician or I'm a healthcare provider. I would be a potential customer then of Bioformis because I want to get this data, right?
2: Correct. Yeah. You want to get the advanced warning system is uh, uh, the more important part. It's uh, careful because uh, clinicians are already inundated with so much information. The last thing they want is essentially data from a continuous monitoring system that is Forget about a clinician, but humans cannot digest continuous stream of, of uh, data anyway, right? So it's not so much the data that they're looking for, but the AIML interpretation of that data and the yeah. timely signal to take a look at the patient for a potential intervention. And then the the clinically established sensitivities, as they call it, or accuracies of this uh, signal to know that, hey, when this signal is generated, there's a 95% chance that there is going to be an intervention necessary. So it is worth my time to now take a closer look at the patient and uh, figure out what's going wrong with this uh, patient. Uh, uh, so uh, lots and lots of applications across, again, as I mentioned, our technology is personalized. It is also disease agnostic. So we are after our AIML, ML will tell you about physiological deterioration, right? Which is interesting to a clinician because then they can apply their skills to figure out what might have gone wrong. The technical trade-off of course is that while we are disease agnostic, well, we are disease agnostic, which means I can't actually, when I tell you something might be going wrong, I actually, my system has actually no idea what it could be, right? Where this is applied is in a couple of very interesting cases. So if you take a, let's say chronic disease, right? And the patient journey. So let's say heart failure is a good example, right? So you're just turned 50, you, visit, you do your annual checkup. And just the fact that you turn 50, you have no symptoms, there's nothing wrong with you, but you might have a family history of heart disease. So the doctor will tell you, well, just because of that, you are at increased risk of heart failure disease, right? The typical prescription at that time, or advice would be to change lifestyle, change dietary, just because you happen to have a family history and you are at higher risk, right? Yeah, yeah. And then you fast forward and what happens, you start might start experiencing some symptoms, right? shortness of breath, something along those lines, right? And they might put you on statin. So maybe your cholesterol is too high and can't be controlled, and you could benefit from that, right? So you could turn around and they might prescribe some statins for you, right? At some point, that might escalate, unfortunately, and you might end up in an adverse event of some kind, a myocardial infarction, or you are completely out of breath and you're rushed to the ER type of thing and so on. And now you come along with a regimen of medication and so on, right? And then you are, the doctor takes care of it, and then you are monitored closely for X amount of time, and then you're back into your stable period of management and so on. And you could go from any one of these stages to anyone back, right? You could be perfectly stable and suddenly something happens, unfortunately, and there's an MI event, et cetera. The value of our system is that along all of these cases, you will get, typically get an earlier warning so that the doctor can, especially when you think about some of the acute phases, or let's say you just were discharged from the hospital with after an acute event. You are very likely to, uh, I think there's a statistic out there that says 25% of people who are discharged after an AE of some kind in the heart failure pace are readmitted back to the hospital within the first 30 days. And the high level reason for that, Nick, right, is that Typically, something like heart failure has to be treated with a cocktail of medicines. We're all sort of familiar with that, right? They essentially treat one thing, but that has a side effect. So they have to negate the side effect with another medicine. And so there's a cocktail of medicines. Unfortunately, that cocktail of medicines has to be tuned. The dosages have to be tuned for your particular case. And unfortunately, before some of the tuning can happen, you might suffer a second incident. And it's actually the second incident that often is the... The more deadlier one has to be treated with uh, much more care because you're already at uh, recovering from the first one, which is significantly costlier and so on and so forth. So with the technology like ours, what happens is as you're going through that tuning system, we will give an earlier indication to the clinician saying, you need to readjust the dosages because this person is actually deteriorating. And that allows the person, the clinician to adjust the dosages before that second incident actually happened. So if you have been diagnosed and you are on a dosage medication or a dosage plan, our system will often give an earlier warning to the clinician to adjust the dosages, which then dramatically improves outcomes and patient quality and so on and so forth. So it's a, a, that's the typical application, right? It's just right. earlier warning, earlier intervention, therefore smaller intervention.
1: And all enabled by continuous monitoring as opposed to uh, the, as I called it, the supply chain as it works. And so, That in itself is a huge benefit, but then when you told me previously about the pharmaceutical companies and how they, I believe, they even came to you and said, well, actually, there's something else we could do with this. Then I was thinking, wow, that never occurred to me, but then I thought, oh my word, you could potentially reinvent how clinical trials are done here. So maybe you could share that story with me.
2: Absolutely. So actually, it came as a little bit of a surprise to us as well when pharma, so What really happened is we're working on this technology. Our focus was cardiac space with a secondary focus on oncology, because that's where a lot of symptoms show up and earlier intervention can have disproportionately large benefits, right? So that was our focus and we're doing our thing and so on. And guess what happens? COVID happens. As it turns out, as I mentioned, our technology is disease agnostic, long story over there, but our technology got applied to COVID management as well, actually worked very successfully. And uh, really put us on the radar of a lot of practitioners and so on, right? So we are on this journey, and out of the blue, the big pharma start coming to us, and we're like, no, no, I'm not really sure why you're, you know, we're gladly take your meetings, but I don't think we our technology really makes any sense for big pharma. It is really about you know healthcare providers and so on and so forth, right? And they came back and they said, no, no, quite the contrary. What's really happening is a lot of drugs, especially the class two, class three, and severe disease cases and so on and so forth, right? They often come with a library of side effects. Right. Are, you know, you, if you look at chemo, the fundamental idea of chemo is it's a poison, right? Obviously, it's going to have lots of side effects. So the question then becomes how do you make these drugs safe? Well, today they approach it essentially as an open loop system from a technical perspective, right? They try to adjust the chemistry so that the the ratio of benefit to risk and so on is appropriate enough for an approval. And then there's a huge clinical practice that is trying to quote unquote monitor you and so on and so forth. So their big insight was, hey, what if we use a system like yours to monitor for these side effects? And not only that, but we could even go one step further. And in some cases, pain medication is an excellent example. If you could give us an objective measure of pain, then your algorithms in your system could actually dictate the appropriate dosages for a medication so they now have identified a class of a whole bunch of molecules which are in various degrees of clinical trials right now where really the only path to an FDA clearance is if it could be accompanied by a system like ours that actually makes the molecule safe to use because the molecule will do its thing we will detect the side effects or we will have earlier detection of something something is going off of the safety margins And that'll be a cue to the clinician to go and adjust the dosages, or maybe eliminate that particular drug until the side effects subsides, and so on and so forth, right? And in many cases, that's really the only regulatory path that is possible. Outside of that, the drug would not be safe to use, and is unlikely to meet regulatory clearances. Yeah. And if you now extend it to even drugs that are already in the market, entresto and people like that, and so on and so forth, right? You can imagine that you can see one day where it'll be almost. unnatural to think of a drug that is taken with no control around it, right? So in the future, we do anticipate a situation where every drug that's prescribed, even if it's fairly innocent, it's just cheap enough to have our system monitor you for any expected side effects so that we can prevent any adverse events due to the drug.
1: And maybe we won't then have the day where I get my medication, I open the box, and I find that very tightly folded bit of paper. It looks like it's been folded by an origami expert. And, and I, opened <laughs> <it up. laughs> I opened it up. There's like eight pages of possible side effects. And one of the reasons was, I guess, because of exactly what you're saying, they give yes. it to the control group. They can't intervene. There's no continuous monitoring. So yes. if anybody develops anything, they have to record it, obviously, but they can't sort of head it off at the past. They can't say, oh, let's adjust and whatever, because they don't have this system. Therefore, the net result down the line is you end up with pages and pages of possible, you know, one patient in a hundred, one patient in a thousand and all of this. And you read this stuff and think, oh my God, do I want to be taking this? And I guess it's all because of the way the the tests work. I mean, you're describing a vision where the whole FDA approval of new drugs could actually involve or require almost continuous monitoring to improve the process.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Not almost. Absolutely. So what would be regulated what will be cleared from regulatory perspective is a com- what we call a combination therapy where you take this medicine and you do this monitoring and you adjust the medicine based on what the monitor is telling you to do and that combination is what will be approved or has a chance of regulatory approval any just the one or the other is unlikely to meet the regulatory safety standards It's such a huge subject.
1: I know we could go on for hours but there are two other areas I wanted to go into if we can. The first one is you're a CTO, we're an IOT company. We haven't talked anything about how uh, you do this. We've said AIML, but actually there is a device involved and that's where our relationship has been. And I know you initially started off with Bluetooth and then in gen one of your devices. And then you, you said, no, 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 we really need cellular and ubiquitous constant connectivity everywhere, which is where we came in. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
2: Absolutely. So especially uh, driven by COVID, there was the realization plus all these use cases that we talk about, right? Whether it's the pharma side and drugs, new drugs coming out the market, or just the number of diseases that we could manage and help uh, improve the management of. You can imagine that our initial solution, which included obviously the data science, but data science needs input in order to drive it. That input, as you mentioned, comes from a wearable so ours happens to be an upper arm-based wearable, has a plethora of sensors in it, which produces the signals, which are then fed and digested by the AIML and so on and so forth. Right? Our initial version, the current version that's in the market, uh, is a CE-approved device uh, and connects to a, uh, over Bluetooth to a smartphone, and the smartphone is the one that actually transmits the data to the cloud. Right? The system works. You know, people manage COVID with it, for example, in many countries actually at a nation-state level and so on. But uh, what that has really done is it's just driven the realization of the value of this into the future, the potential that something as a solution like this can bring to bear. Yeah, And a few countries, so because of COVID, a few countries actually chose our solution as the way to manage COVID in their country. So if you've got COVID in, let's say, Australia, the standard protocol will actually send you home with our solution And then our AI will indicate when you need to be brought back in, perhaps for ventilation. But the vast majority, of course, recover without any such readmissions and so on and so forth. right? But people like that, countries like that have come to us and say, hey, outside of COVID, we could actually use this for many other disease areas. The problem, of course, is when you're trying to use it at a population level scale, trying to create an ecosystem where there is a Uh, controlled device, which is a smartphone, which obviously has to, you know, meet configurations and uptime uh, uh, numbers and so on and so forth. That just is not technically viable today, right? Nobody's going to carry two smartphones to begin with. And even after that, trying to keep the device in close proximity to the Bluetooth uh, uh, smartphone has actually turned out to be extremely challenging. People walk into the bathroom, people walk into the basement, they go to the kitchen, they leave the, you know, the phone charging in in the study, and they have gone to sleep in the bedroom, and now Bluetooth connectivity has been lost, right? So Bluetooth is actually just not a viable way to do this continuous monitoring. And that's what led us to saying, hey, we should just put a a 4G chip into the device, have it connect directly over the 4G network into the cloud. And now the patient just has to slip in our device, and they are in continuous monitoring, and magic starts happening, right? So that was the promise. At this point, that is the reality as well. And that is really what introduced us to eSi. So we looked for a way to make this wearable work across the world in all of the geographies where we already have business and then more, and ultimately identified SI as the partner. And even though we didn't sort of realize it at the time, what's turned out is just the whole getting an IoT device to actually work in an approved manner, pass all the regulatory hurdles in across the world is actually a very, very tall task. It is. Um, Uh, And certainly, obviously, it's, you know, engineering and science, it's doable. But you can imagine for a company like us, where we have so much potential just in our domain, you know, for me to try and allocate engineering resources to really become an expert in the 4G network part is probably not the most direct investment that we would have liked to make, right? So a partner like SI has had disproportionate amount of effect. And even though we stepped into it more on, you know, reputation and recommendation and so on. What we actually experienced was SI's tremendous experience and expertise in not just in what they do, but in extending their expertise into what we do. So today, engineers and support people at SI actually have an inordinate amount of expertise on my device and what it's trying to do and the implications of how it does things and so on. And that was necessary. That overlap of expertise was what was necessary to bring what we now have to the market. And that has been a a big uh, uh, success story from our side. So today, our next generation device is available and works across the world. I believe there are three countries, which I didn't even know they were actually officially recognized as countries. But in any case, uh, except for those three countries, the device... Yeah, that's right. People ask us, we say we have
1: global connectivity and we solve this problem, which, by the way, everybody thinks isn't a problem because we said on many podcasts, I just put a SIM in my phone, it works, doesn't it? Well, IoT device. No, it doesn't. IOT devices don't work like that, but that's every every customer. It's an education process. But yeah, there are three countries and it's more to do with the uh, political regime and, yes. <laughs> uh, and what those guys do with technology, which be, there are three, but other than that, it's every country in the world. <laughs> and yeah, I know it's been a great journey and we've learned a lot together and trying to do this in a relatively small device. And as you say, you know, it's, you know, not only can the the patients perhaps leave the phone downstairs and go to sleep upstairs, but some of these patients are, you know, in their seventies or their eighties, and telling them to sync sync with a smartphone. I mean, it's just not going to happen. So, cellular around the world with the one button press that we talked about, uh, and getting this device because the device is the it all starts with the device, and then the data goes to the and getting the data into the cloud. Another technical problem. People think it's easy. It's not from a variety of different operators and then getting into your AI engine. And so it has been a great journey. Let's try and bring it all together if we can, Milan. Such a great story, but let's try and bring it all together with one example of one country. And I know that, I think you've mentioned Singapore earlier. I know that you guys are pretty active in Singapore. I think there's, what's the 7 million people there or whatever, beautiful place. Maybe you could just describe a little bit about what you've been doing in Singapore, because I believe you talked about regulatory approval, and I, I believe you're pretty far down the road there.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, so Singapore is uh, somewhat special in our history because we were founded in Singapore. Our uh, two co-founders happened to be students at the National Univers- University of Singapore, pursuing their PhDs when uh, you know they decided to do uh, Bioformis. And the country of Singapore has been a, a tremendous aid all along. They're actually an investor at this point. EDBI is a, is an investor, early investor, I should say, right? So they were very much an important reason why we were able to get to this stage of our journey. But interestingly enough, what uh, really happened is, again, COVID happened. Now, Singapore, Hong Kong, all these regions, you know, they had a previous experience with SARS. So they had a tremendous experience in how to manage coronavirus like COVID prior to that. Yeah. So they didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily looking for technology like ours. Right. And in fact, you know, in the grand scheme of things, they were very successful at very aggressively managing the spread of COVID. Right. And then of course, what happened is uh, eventually an outbreak did happen. They have in Singapore, there are these higher concentration living arrangements. They call them foreign worker dorms and COVID broke out over there. And suddenly they had essentially overnight or in very short duration, thousands and thousands of covid patients right all in a very concentrated physical location type of thing yeah and what they decided to do was basically take every resident of these dorms give them one of our solutions and then they literally set up a clinical center right in the at the basement or one of the uh, you know floors of the dorm where they brought in some clinical staff over there who were monitoring all of the patients all of the subjects and then you know calling the ones where we signaled would need attention calling them into the uh, uh, into the clinical center that was set up in the dorm itself. Yeah. So that's how they managed COVID outbreak when it did happen in these highly concentrated areas. And that is really what led them to think about wait a minute, right? This we see how this works. You know, people are going about their lives, they're wearing this device, they're being monitored when it signals. And that's when they're brought into the hospital. And they started exploring with us the idea that outside of COVID, can we use this for many other disease areas as well? And the answer, of course, is yes. I mean, what really happens exactly like you described, right? If you yourself fall sick, you know, you'll wait for three days until it hits a certain threshold, and then you'll seek an appointment, and then you'll finally get a a visit with the doctor. By that time, A, the disease has progressed. And worse is 90% of the time, you know, there's not much to do. They'll tell you to sleep it off, right? If you haven't already done that already, right? So this whole process is inefficient on both ends of the spectrum. A, it doesn't get to the people who need it early enough. And then it wastes way too much energy looking at patients that actually don't need- And and if I can, and this is really the nub of it, it wastes
1: way too much energy and way too much money because what you're describing is you're, you're describing that the customer is the government. The traditional RPM, remote patient monitoring and healthcare companies are selling to the clinician, persuade the clinician. But you're talking about an environment where you say to the government, look, if you go from reactive to proactive, preemptive or continuous monitoring, you're actually going to save potentially hundreds of millions maybe billions of dollars in your national healthcare infrastructure because yeah. they just a lot of them aren't going to go in the first place they're going to have an intervention so actually you're selling at the government level that's right a medical device for the population
2: that's right that's right that's exactly correct yeah and uh, it's just a safety mechanism exactly to your point for those countries that have nationalized health systems right it is a a way to achieve a tremendously higher efficiency in terms of allocation of resources, right? You are the NHS, you are the Ministry of Health in Singapore, and you're trying to figure out which patients to allocate your resources to. Something like this can be essentially disruptive and game-changing because we are bringing continuous monitoring to the table at this point in time. Yeah,
1: And wow, tremendous. And that model, when you think about the potential globally for that model, it's truly disruptive in a very good way. And as you said, it's not disease specific. I think he used a phrase earlier on, I quite like that. The AI ML doesn't know it's data and interpretation. It could be a heart condition, but it, it could go across so many different areas. And you guys okay. are one of the first movers. You've raised the most money, and so clearly, you know, you're pushing hard. And I, I know working with you on a almost daily basis. Well, we are working with you on a daily basis. You guys are running hard, charging hard in many different areas, and it's such an exciting iot case study which is what these podcasts are all about and uh, i think it's a tremendous story let's finish if we can we could go on for hours on this but i um let's finish if we can is there a vision is there it's so big it's so uh, you think you could do this you could do that you could do this is there some vision for how it just all becomes part of our daily lives you know
2: Yes, Nick, you know, the recently I was uh, talking to someone and uh, sort of an analogy came to mind, right? Which is if you think about just, you know, 15, 20 years ago maybe, right? GPS was a new thing and you went off and bought this, you know, $2000 piece of equipment, you know, that sat on a big sack on your car dashboard type of thing. GPS has now become completely ubiquitous. Either your car has it or your, certainly your phone has it. And today while of course it's entirely possible to, you know, to transport yourself in cars and automobiles without a GPS, practically nobody does it, right? Everybody will, even on your daily commute, you want to take a look at the best route given all the traffic. It's
1: dynamic. It's more intelligent than it's just itself. Yeah.
2: Yeah, exactly. And it's really no cost. It's right there. It's something that has a tremendous benefit and really not much downside to it at all. And everybody uses it, right? It's almost impossible to Think about landing or trying to go somewhere without a GPS these days, yeah? Well, the same analogy applies to healthcare. Whether you're navigating a disease or you are been, uh, prescribed a complex molecule or complex regime of uh, medication, trying to navigate that journey completely blind with no guide at all just will seem very, very antiquated in a very short order. Systems like ours are likely to become very ubiquitous people will just have it, whether it is because, you know, the government of Singapore just gave you a device and it's just easy enough to wear it. And, and now you're navigating your health without really having to do much about it, you know, you just wear a device and and, and and the system will tell you when you might need to get some care. Or as we described, you know, you're in some complex uh, medication regimen, and you have a system like ours that is guiding you through, through that uh, journey as a patient. I think uh, systems like ours are going to become completely ubiquitous. It'll be kind of uh, impossible to think about the day and age when we t- were trying to navigate personal health with absolutely no guidance, like you're saying, on the b- basis of of a little sheet of paper that was folded together by an origami expert, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> that's the equivalent of those.
1: Which those nobody guidelines. reads. <laughs> well, very few do. After I've read, a, I've read a few and then I thought, I'm not going to read them because they scare me <laughs> But you know, they do say that that technology truly becomes ubiquitous when it's in effect invisible. Yes, and sort of what you're you're describing. It'll be you notice it more by its absence than by its presence. That's correct, and, and that's exactly what you're describing. So, Milan, I think we're going to have to leave it there. It is such an exciting story on multiple fronts. I mean, it brings all the pieces of IoT together, but it also addresses such a big problem with a, such a huge potential opportunity. I mean, selling to governments, like you said, the government funds the device. So it's a different commercial model, something that's transposable across different human conditions, the pharmaceuticals and the, the healthcare providers being different groups. It's a really exciting thing. And we've been very happy with our partnership. As you say, everybody always thinks the device is easy. And every single one of these podcasts is sort of clustered around that central problem. I thought the device was easy, and then I found out it wasn't, so came to SI. So thanks for that. I know there's uh, lots of exciting things in the future, which we can't talk about. But in the meantime, it's been a really, really great podcast. Thanks for joining me, and I'm sure our listeners will have loved to listen to it. So thanks for being my guest on the
2: IoT Leaders podcast. And Nick, thank you for inviting us. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for tuning
1: in to IoT Leaders, a podcast brought to you by SI. Our team delivers innovative global IoT cellular connectivity solutions that just work, helping our customers deploy differentiated experiences and disrupt their markets. Learn more at SI.com.
0: You've been listening to IoT Leaders, featuring digitization leadership on the front lines of IoT. Our vision for this podcast is to be your guide to IoT and digital disruption, helping you to plot the right route to success. We hope today's lessons, stories, strategies, and insights have changed your vision of IoT. Let us know how we're doing by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and recommending us. Thanks for listening, until next time.